This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Novara Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing? I'm feeling fine, Michael. How are you? Very well. Uh, fill me in. What is your shirt? Who, who are you wearing, babe? Who are you wearing? I'm wearing Hackney Wick FC, um, apparently sponsored by Top Boy. I'm not sure mm. if you guys can see that, but I'm just in a football mood. Are they a real football team? Well, apparently. It... They're real apparently. enough to have a shirt. Okay, perfect. If you're a member of Hackney Wick FC, do uh, let us know in the comments. Sorry if I implied you might not even exist. Coming up later, large parts of HS2 seem to be the latest thing Sunak has decided he will be scrapping. We can't build anything. Also, the Canadian Parliament are looking stupid after applauding a Nazi veteran. All very embarrassing. And some updates on the situation with the Russell Brand allegations. Stay tuned for all that. First story. The killing of unarmed 24-year-old Chris Cabot in South London last year has led to an armed officer being charged with murder. But scrutiny isn't something the police seem very keen on. Nearly 300 firearms officers have handed in their gun permits following the murder charge, with the army briefly put on standby to fill in for them. That's in counter-terrorism cases. It's worth noting that there are over 2,500 firearms officers in the Met, so about 85% of them are still armed and on duty. The Met has now stood the army down, saying there are enough officers to continue operations. The police, who've stepped back from their duties, appear to want more legal protection from prosecution in the event they kill someone. And Home Secretary Suala Braverman is behind them, saying this. We depend on our brave firearms officers to protect us from the most dangerous and violent in society. In the interest of public safety, they have to make split-second decisions under extraordinary pressures. They mustn't fear ending up in the dock for carrying out their duties. Officers risking their lives to keep us safe have my full backing, and will do, and I will do everything in my power to support them. That's why I have launched a review to ensure they have the confidence to do their jobs while protecting us all. That's the current Home Secretary and former Attorney General apparently commenting on a live criminal case. Because the Cabot case is ongoing, there are very strict rules about commenting on it in the media. If a journalist says or implies something that may affect the outcome of that trial, they could be charged with contempt of court. Bradman's intervention has led former Shadow Attorney General Carl Turner to say this. It is incredibly ill-advised for any government minister, not least a former Attorney General and current Home Secretary, to be commenting on a criminal prosecution. Any such comment risks unfairly influencing the outcome of a court case and is potentially a contempt of court. Rishi Sunak is also backing the firearms officers, though more cautiously than his home secretary. Over the weekend, he said this. Our firearms officers do uh, an incredibly difficult job. They're making life or death decisions in a split second to keep us safe, and they deserve our gratitude for their bravery. Now, it's important when they're using these legal powers uh, that they do so with clarity uh, and they have certainty about what they're doing, especially given the lethality that they are using. Uh, That's why the Home Secretary's asked her department to review the guidance that the officers are operating under to make sure that it is robust and that it commands the confidence not just of the officers but of the public as well. Obviously, I wouldn't be right for me to speculate on ongoing cases, but that's what we're doing. Met Police Commissioner Mark Rowley appears to be behind Braverman's review too. In a letter published on Sunday, he said this, In the UK, we proudly police by consent, embracing the principles of accountability, transparency and independent scrutiny. 
It is essential that we have a system which commands the confidence of officers and the communities they serve. Of course, where wrongdoing takes place, the public expect us to be held to the highest standards. I have been clear on this in all areas of policing, and the use of force must be no exception. The system that judges officers' actions should be rooted in integrity and decisions should be reached swiftly, competently, and without fear or favour. A review is needed to address accountability mechanisms, including the policies and practices of the Independent Office for Police Conduct and the Crown Prosecution Service, ideally with a focus on the threshold for investigating police use of force and involvement in pursuits. Now, is that Rowley saying the CPS should apply a different standard to police prosecutions than it does for the rest of us. On Radio Force Today programme, former chief of the Greater Manchester Force, Peter Fahey, said this. The police are subject to the criminal law in the same way as anybody else is, uh, and the Crown Prosecution Service have to use that threshold. And so it would be a very fundamental change if that was going to be you know, altered in terms of police officers. Uh, my own view, as I say, is you need to reduce uh, the situations, reduce the number of situations where armed officers have to intervene. Uh, that's actually happening in the United States, and uh, in, in, in they're looking at that, this particular issue. And a number of departments, for instance, have banned what's called no-knock warrants, where officers just burst into houses. It's different there because so many people have guns in in their home. Uh, but as Mark is, so Mark is saying as well, you know, the police have changed their policy over many years about uh, the way they pursue suspected stolen vehicles, putting a different emphasis and uh, about the safety of the public and the safety of officers. And I think that might need to happen in this case. But for that to happen, there would need to be a rebalancing and the police given other ways and other powers uh, to actually deal with armed criminality. Because I say, I, I feel that we're dealing with it in a very old-fashioned way, mm. using tactics which, you know, are reminiscent of the, the Wild West. And as I say, the crucial a- aspect to this is we ask police officers, uh, armed officers, to intervene uh, in very fast-moving incidents and make split-second decisions, which they're going to be responsible for the rest of their lives. And so the focus should be on how do we reduce the number of those situations That seemed like a very measured response from a former police chief. He recognised that armed police officers don't have an easy job, but said our response should be to put them in fewer situations where they might make the wrong call, as opposed to giving them carte blanche if they do. Someone, though, who appeared to want carte blanche appeared later on the show. He was a former firearms officer who chose to remain unnamed. And this is what he said about the firearms officers handing back their guns. I think, to be perfectly honest, they're incredibly concerned. What's obvious to me is that they're not acting out of uh, anger or petulance. Um, This is not a a kind of coordinated protest. This is uh, individuals who uh, have partners and families uh, and who are incredibly committed to their profession. They train very hard to to do a good job. And they're genuinely concerned that, uh, to be honest, it's not really worth it anymore. The risk to them and their liberty and to their families uh, is just too great. So although it's very troubling, I've been very unsettled to see the way this has panned out. I'm not at all surprised. Would you be doing the same if you were still serving? Currently, yes, I would. The risk to my family uh, would, would be would be too great. When you say risk to, to, to the family, you mean reputational risk or actually the the legal risk that you might be taking? The legal risk, uh, should I do the uh, the thing that I'm trained to do in that circumstance if I have no other option in order to save life than to discharge a firearm and, and ultimately shoot someone, the risk that I'll be unfairly treated uh, in an unfair process following that, the risk of that to my family, the stress, 
the 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 blow to mental health, personal relationships, it just wouldn't be worth it. Now, on one level, I am sympathetic to that argument. It's not easy being in a job where a mistake can have consequences that follow you outside of that job. If I mess up at work, I might lose my job, but I can get another one. If a cop messes up doing their job, they can, in theory, end up with a criminal charge. The exact same logic applies to medical professionals who also make life and death decisions on a daily basis. It's a tough gig. I don't envy them. But what stuck in my craw there was the implication that the officer who's been charged with murder has been, quote, unfairly treated in an unfair process. Now, we can't comment on the individual merits of his charge as it's a live case, but history tells us that charging a serving police officer, let alone charging them for murder, isn't done willy-nilly. And that was a point made well by Harriet Wistridge. She's a lawyer who represented the family of Jean-Charles de Menezes at the inquiry into his killing by the Met Police. I think we need to remember that charging uh, an armed officer with murder is something almost unheard of in this country, despite a number of people having been uh, shot dead by the police, including uh, Jean-Charles de Menezes. And uh, the reason for that, uh, if you look at, for example, the Jean-Charles de Menezes case, uh, which was a case where uh, the the man who was killed um, actually posed no threat whatsoever. There was conflicting evidence between um, the officers and the passengers on the tube when he was shot dead about whether he did anything uh, at all to provoke them to shoot. Um, that, that, that even in, in circumstances like that, uh, the Crown Prosecution Service considered all the evidence very carefully, made a decision not to charge any officer. So we already have a very, very careful high level of scrutiny of actions um, by uh, officers in circumstances where consideration is given to charge. And the law will apply and uh, the Crown Prosecution Service and the uh, uh, Independent Office of Police Complaints to investigate will take into account that officers um, are doing a job and are under a very stressed circumstances when they take those steps. So I think we have to allow the rule of law to apply in this case. Wistrich also pointed out some things that were said about armed officers in the Casey report. Now, that report was commissioned in the wake of the murder of Sarah Everard and published in March following an investigation by Louise Casey. She was tasked with examining racism, misogyny, homophobia and corruption in the Met. And the Met Specialist Firearm Command, also known as MO19, came in for particular criticism. The report said this, Working in MO19 is seen as a prestigious and elite part of the Met. This has led to a widely held view in the command and in the rest of the Met that firearms officers need to be allowed to bend or break the rules because they are volunteers who could at any point decide not to carry a firearm or hand in their blue card. We were told of one senior Met officer telling others in their chain of command that it was all right to colour outside the lines, to bend and break the rules because firearms officers are harder to replace than other officers and need to be cherished. Casey also made this recommendation about the squad. The commissioner should be setting new, higher betting and behaviour standards in its specialist armed teams to identify any conduct issues and to keep out those drawn to these roles for the wrong reasons. In addition, all current officers carrying firearms should be thoroughly re-vetted and have this standard applied to them retrospectively. So the argument there, made by Louise Casey after her, you know, a report which took her a long time. She seems to have interviewed a lot of people and politicians at the time said they took very seriously. She's saying this particular unit of armed police officers need to be held to higher scrutiny. Now you've got the Home Secretary essentially saying, no, they should be held to 
lower scrutiny because one person has been charged with murder and, and now suddenly everyone's throwing their toys out the pram. Ash, what do you make of this case? I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting conversation because obviously people keep talking about has a threshold been met and, and we can't talk about the individual circumstances around this prosecution with regards to Chris Cabot because it's a live investigation. So we have to stick to generalities. But what, mm. what do you think here? I mean, just to reiterate, because I've seen some comments popping up in the chat, the reason why we can't comment on the Chris Cabba case is because it's currently subject to ongoing police and criminal justice proceedings. So what that means is that if we were to share what are our opinions on this particular prosecution, that could endanger uh, this particular firearms officer receiving a fair trial. And regardless of what you think about the case, whether you think they're guilty or not, if a trial collapses because of unfairness. Obviously, that's not good for anybody. Uh, and also, we could be found in contempt of court. So we will be talking about the Chris Cabba case once criminal justice proceedings have concluded, um, but we're not able to do so right now. So just to reassure viewers, that's why we're not sharing our opinions on it. But speak about some of these generalities. I mean, that unnamed former firearms officer who talked about being unfairly subjected to an unfair process is talking an absolute load of shit, to be honest. And it's insulting. It's gravely insulting, considering how uh, it has played out when police officers have taken the life of someone in their custody or someone that they've made contact with uh, in the course of carrying out their duties. I mean, we've mentioned John Charles de Menezes. He was someone who was found to be posing no risk. He was gunned down. And because the threshold was met of, you know, uh, having an honestly held belief that he posed a threat, he, he never received justice. He never received justice. Uh, similarly, Ian Tomlinson, who viewers may remember, was killed uh, at a G20 protest after being batoned in the back of the head. Uh the officer was put on trial for manslaughter. He was found not guilty. And again, I think we can say that this was not an officer who was subject to unfair treatment. I think that it would be safe to say, at least in my opinion, that he was uh, given much more benefit of the doubt than any private citizen would have uh, were they to have batoned someone in the head, in the back of the head, in the way that this particular officer did uh, Mr. Tomlinson. Any other number of names, we could talk about Cherry Gross, we could talk about Joy Gardiner, who was killed by police officers in Tottenham. This was in the 1980s, I believe, uh, during the course of an immigration raid. In front of her son, they wrapped 13 feet of tape around her head. She suffocated to death and they were not found guilty of manslaughter. They were not found guilty of murder. In fact, you know, since the 1960s, the only case where an officer has been found guilty of murder or manslaughter for a death in custody was in the more recent case of Daly and Atkinson. So when you think about those many hundreds of deaths following police contact, over 1,500 deaths following police contact, and you've had one conviction for murder or manslaughter in this case, it is hardly being subject to unfair proceedings. You know, you've got the case of Mark Duggan gunned down in 2011. Uh, what was made public through the press turned out not to be true. In my opinion, my personal opinion, there are still huge contradictions and inadequacies in the official account of what happened. Um, 
these are not firearms officers who were then, you know, hauled in front of a judge on murder or manslaughter charges. So I think that the police are uniquely protected rather than uniquely vulnerable to the law when it comes to uh, deaths in police custody or following police contact, and no one more so than firearms officers. And I think that there's been something very manipulative that's been going on with Sir Mark Rowley and Suella Braverman um, and you know other uh, senior police advocates in the media, is that what they have said is that this protest of, you know, handing in your weapons and saying you're going to refuse to carry out your job uh, as firearms officers, they're saying, oh, well, it's actually because the threshold is is too low and it ties us up in investigations carried out by the IOPC for too long. Mark Rowley cited the case of two officers uh, who were, I think they were waiting to be charged for two years and waiting on bail for another year. And they're saying, oh, well, the pace of these investigations is too slow. The threshold is too low. That really doesn't have much to do with why these officers have really put down their guns. The real reason, and it's screamingly obvious to anyone with half a brain, is that one of their own has been charged with murder. And if you're used to breaking the rules, if you're used to being told that you can color outside the lines, if you're not confident that you will be able to lawfully stand up for the decision that you took, when you're held to the same standards as any other private citizen, well, you would go, I don't want to do this job anymore. I want to use the leverage that I have, which is that this is a a voluntary position. You're not made a firearms officer against your will. You have to put yourself up for the job. Um, And that means that we've got leverage if we withdraw our labor. It's wholly manipulative. It's obvious what's going on. And it's a, a total um, insult in the face of those Pelian principles that all police officers are supposed to abide by. Because when armed police officers take up the job, they do so on the basis that they will be held accountable through the law for their actions. Now, it's very rare that that principle is actually enforced. And now this one time where it's happening, they're chucking their toys out the pram. I think that is so revealing of the culture of entitlement and endemic rule breaking that you see throughout the Metropolitan Police. I'm going to say something which I'm not sure is going to be popular with the audience, but I mean, something I keep hearing today, which has surprised me, is that being a firearms officer is voluntary. You know, you don't, obviously you're not doing it for free, you're just getting paid your normal police salary, but you don't get paid any extra to be a firearms officer. Now, for me, like everything we've read in the case review suggests that, you know, these 300 people who've down there, you know, who've given back their permits, I'm, I'm not going to assume that they are, you know, good people making a reasonable protest. But it does seem to me that you are taking on a higher level of responsibility and risk if you are a firearms officer. And I don't know why we don't just pay them a bit more. It seems it seems very dysfunctional to have a system whereby we say, well, they're, they're doing something for us for free, so we have to basically let them break the rules. Otherwise, you know, that's how the deal works. Why don't we say, you've got to follow the rules, but we'll pay you a bit more? I mean, what, what would you say to that, Ash? To be honest, I, I don't really care how much they get paid. If paying them more meant they're more likely to follow the rules, then fine. But I don't think it really has anything to do with pay. I mean, when you read the Casey report, what you see is there's an absolutely rotten culture at the Met, and it plays out in different ways across different units. So in some units, you're seeing that play out in terms of deeply racist, misogynist behavior, posing with the dead bodies of murdered women, having group chats where, you know, offensive language of the kind that I won't even dignify by repeating here as being habitually used. You see abuses of police power 
on a daily basis in terms of uh, stop and search, police violence, unfair scrutiny, racial profiling. These are all things that go on at the Met. So I think that even were you to, you know, pay those armed officers a bit more or a lot more even, it wouldn't change the fact that they've got this prestige and they've also got the knowledge that they're protected by this totally rotten culture in which police can largely operate with impunity. I mean, just around the corner from where I live, a couple of years ago, a police officer was filmed punching a teenager in the face. Now, it was looked at and there was absolutely nothing done. No gross misconduct charges, no disciplinary that I know of. As far as I know, this police officer is still working for the Metropolitan Police. And that's someone who isn't taking on that kind of, you know, risk to life and limb responsible for, you know, imminent threats to the public that we're saying that armed officers are subject to. And they're still abusing their power in that way because they are so protected from accountability. So I think sure, pay them more, whatever, but I don't think it's going to deal with that that mindset problem, which is the product of a rotten culture and a rotten structure. Yeah, no, I think I, I agree with that. I just, I, whenever I hear, you know, it, it does make sense that you would, if you're taking on more responsibility, you want something in return. The thing that they seem to want in return is to be able to break the rules. I think it would be much better to say, no, you can't do that. And we'll, we'll pay you a little bit more to, for taking on a little bit more responsibility. It just surprises me they don't do that already. It seems a little bit odd to me. Next story. It's time for a short geography lesson. Buckle up. This is a map of the French high-speed rail network. The TGV connects most major cities in France with speeds of up to 320 kilometers per hour. The French were the first European country to build high-speed rail, opening a route between Paris and Lyon in 1981. It now comprises 2,800 kilometers of track. And those dotted lines show that vast lines are still being constructed. Next, this is Spain's high-speed rail network. It connects all of Spain's major cities at speeds of up to 300 kilometers per hour. Its first line was opened in 1992, and it now covers almost 4,000 kilometers of track. Next, this is China's high-speed rail network. With 42,000 kilometers of track, it is by far the longest in the world, and most impressively, it has nearly all been built since 2008. And this is high-speed rail in Britain. Now, you might have to squint because the UK's only purpose-built high-speed rail line is the one that connects London to the Channel Tunnel and onto Paris via the Eurostar, that little squiggle at the bottom there. HS1 was opened in 2007 and is 109 kilometres long. Of course, HS2 was all supposed to change this. It would go from central London to Birmingham and then split off to go on a line to Manchester in the west and Leeds to the east. It would transform connectivity in the UK and bring us up to speed with our European peers. But after two decades of planning, it's now set to be scrapped. Well, most of it anyway. In 2021, the proposed eastern leg from Birmingham to Leeds was scrapped. That's the red line there. And now, according to briefings to weekend newspapers, the proposed line from Birmingham to Manchester looks set to be axed. And what's more, the Prime Minister won't even confirm whether the half-built Birmingham to London line will even go to central London. There's speculation it will instead terminate in the suburbs at Old Oak Common. Defence Secretary Grant Shapps used to be Transport Secretary, so he was asked about the government's plans on Sky. 
So H S two is a huge infrastructure project. I was uh, it's in a big charge with it for, for, for three and a half years. It's a huge. It's it, it, as you say, it's the biggest single one I think probably in Europe. And there is always going to be, and there has always been, and rightly should be, a question of how you pace the development of that line. Um, there were decisions that I had to make at the time about it, particularly with reference to the eastern leg at that particular moment in time. And every government wants to take that under consideration. Again, it's not my area these days. There's no actual decisions made as yet. I'm seeing quite a lot of speculation about it. Actually, when you think about the size of the project and the amount of money that goes into that, as opposed to, you were just talking about welfare, for example, every government has to make that decision. And, and that's absolutely right. The point that Rishi... So, so uh, what you're saying is it's plausible, it's on the table, that you may need to cut the cost of this. And one way of doing that would be to run the line only as far as Acton and West London, and only as far as Birmingham. It's one possibility. As I say, I think it's a question of sequencing, but to your wider point that you actually started off with, Rishi Sunak is the kind of Prime Minister who's prepared to take these difficult long-term decisions. Not always popular. We saw, and, we saw for example... HS2 is one of those difficult decisions. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly it's difficult in terms of the, the, the pacing and the expectations, but we saw not just with HS2, but with our pace of change with net zero this week, that just because... The media says this must be done just because some people will say, uh, you know, these are the popular things to do. He's prepared to do long-term <laughs> difficult things as well. Once again, in the Tories' through-the-looking-glass world, scrapping valuable infrastructure projects or dumping ambitious carbon targets is the equivalent of making tough decisions for the long term. Tough decisions for the long term by scrapping things which will be useful in the long term or prevent catastrophe in the long term. I don't get it. And neither does Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. Why is it always that people here are forced to choose? That we can't have everything? We've, you can have this or you can have that, but you can't have everything. London never has to choose between a north-south line and an east-west line and good public transport within the city. Why is it that people in the north are always forced to choose? Why are we always treated as second-class citizens when it comes to transport? This was the parliament when they said they would level us up. If they leave a situation where the south, the southern half of the country is connected by modern high-speed lines and the north of England is left with Victorian infrastructure, that is a recipe for the north-south divide to become a north-south chasm over the rest of this century. And that is why people here uh, are fed up with false promises uh, and also watching now what is a, you know, what seems to be the desperate acts of a dying government. This is really not right and not fair to people here who were given so many promises. If the Birmingham to Manchester part of HS2 is scrapped, the reason will be costs. Back in 2010, when HS2 was first proposed, the cost for the full programme, going from London to Birmingham and then on to Manchester and Leeds, was supposed to be £30 billion. But now, just the leg from London to Birmingham is set to cost a whopping £50 billion. But that doesn't seem to be a problem with high-speed rail as such, but rather a problem with Britain. This chart from the Times shows the cost per mile of recent high-speed routes in Europe. At the bottom end is Madrid to Galicia, that's in northern Spain, which cost £19 million per mile. At the higher end is Stuttgart to Munich, which cost £70 million per mile. But then you get to the London to Birmingham wing of HS2, which is a phenomenal £319 million per mile. Ash, what is it about Britain? What is it about us, guys? We can't have nice things. We're a bad vibes island, Michael. Please just leave us to be swallowed up by the seas. It would be merciful at this point. I mean, 
Look, the reason why it's been so expensive is because one, it's been beset by delays. So the more you delay a project, the more expensive it's going to be because you've got to keep paying all those people on your payroll. And also the more you drag things on, the more you're impacted by rising labor costs, rising cost of materials, rising value of land. Inflation will mean that your project will get more expensive. So because HS2 has been hit by delay after delay after delay, it has gotten more expensive. And then those expenses in turn become an excuse for more delays. Whereas anyone who has, you know, carried out any kind of project in their working life, or maybe they run a business could tell you this is exactly the wrong way to go about it. Um, there are some other reasons why HS2 has been, you know, su such a, you know, a, a bloodletting of money for the British state. And one is we have an enormous amount of outsourcing and privatization. So when you're handing out all the contracts like this, and it's an opportunity for the private sector to get rich off the taxpayers' money, um, of course, the costs go up again, because you don't have that insourcing, which we know is quite good at controlling some of these costs. Um, and then I also think what we have is, is a hollowing out, a, a self-inflicted hollowing out the state's capacity to do stuff because we've been operating on this ideological insistence that the state is always inefficient and the private sector is always most efficient and that hasn't simply been a post-2010 austerity thing that was the logic of Tony Blair that was the logic of Margaret Thatcher and what that meant is we had convinced ourselves the best way to have improved services was to sell them off to people who want to profit from them. Now, what's the best way to make a profit from something? Is it to spend money and invest in it or is it to asset strip it? Well, it's to asset strip it. So this logic of asset stripping, of squeezing out as much money as possible from the treasury, from the public purse and funneling it towards shareholder wealth, corporate wealth, has meant that we've seen our public infrastructure crumble. I mean, you know, when you look at the parlous state of HS2 to, you know, the fact that our railways proper are beset with so many problems to what's going on with schools to what's going on with, with our water infrastructure, the lack of reservoirs, the, the crumbling pipes of Victorian London, that shows you what happens when you hand over infrastructure to the private sector, they take the money out. They don't put the work, the investment, the delivery back in. And it's shameful. I mean, Michael, when you when you were comparing those maps, uh, you know, seeing where we are compared to France, compared to Spain, compared to China, I genuinely wanted to weep. And you've got a media culture where instead of just going, why isn't HS2 happening, you fucking idiots? The question is, oh, well, you know, do we need HS2? You know, do we need fast trains? As if there's some kind of luxury, as if what we're asking for is Bugattis for everyone, rather than this is a, quite a normal piece of infrastructure in the rest of Europe, and we are lagging far behind, and that's the government's fault. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's just been a, a victim of the neoliberal consensus over the last 40 years. And I know that this might upset some people um, who are watching 
Um, it's my turn to say something controversial, Michael, but I think that the line of the Green Party and some environmentalists on HS2 has been nothing short of bizarre. Uh, the preservation of natural habitats is, of course, important, but we need high-speed rail infrastructure if we're going to decarbonize, if we're going to get cars off the road, if we're going to get freight off the road and onto those slower main lines. Um, totally short-termist thinking. I think it also really empowered uh, the, you know, the NIMBYs and the people who said, well, we want we want HS2, but we're not going to let you build it cheaply. You've got to do it in the most expensive way possible. I think it handed over a load of, you know, greenwashed ballast to the right. And we're now reaping the consequences of it. Um, we might not even get an HS2 that goes further than Birmingham. Um, and, you know, all it's going to do is connect me to Acton. I mean, you know, no shade to Acton, but I think the North could do with a bit more rail infrastructure before Acton gets a bit more, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's completely strange. I mean, Andy Burnham, I think, did put it well, sort of saying, you know, levelling up, you, you, you're going to build only the half of it, which is in the south of the country. It doesn't, doesn't make much sense. And then if it doesn't even go to central London, we've got this, we've got this amazing high-speed rail line that goes from Acton to Birmingham and, and no further. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of some of the reasons, I agree with what you say on, on insourcing to a degree. I mean, I was talking to Sam Dimitriou, Dimitriou on a sort of recent episode. And I kind of, I mean, he's, I think he's probably on the centre-right there sort of think tank. But one of the things he was saying is, you know, in, there aren't many countries where the people who actually lay the tracks are state-owned companies. But what you would normally have is some expertise within government when it comes to contracting out that job. And what the UK government tends to do is it gets in a consultancy company. So it gets in Deloitte or whoever to sort of do it for them. And that means that you don't build up any sort of institutional knowledge. Whereas in France or Spain, you have experts within the civil service who are, you know, they're experts on, on, on building railways, right? They're not necessarily going to do it themselves, but they know how to contract the right people and how to make deals which are in the public interest. And we don't do that. And important there is also that once you start building them, you build up the the knowledge, right? So I I always feel like if it's expensive, build it and maybe the next one will be cheaper, right? You know, you, the first time you do something is always going to be the most difficult time, right? So if we build HS2 London to Birmingham and it's quite expensive, then maybe when we do Birmingham to Manchester and, and Birmingham to Leeds, it will get a bit cheaper. Then we'll do Leeds to Glasgow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then, and then you build up the knowledge and it gets a bit cheaper. The other thing, I think the other group of people who've screwed us over when it comes to high-speed rail is NIMBYs and especially... NIMBYs in the south of England with Tory MPs who say, we don't want a train track going through our fields, even though our fields look the same as every other field in the country. Um, and so, so much of HS2 has had to go underground and tunneling is very, very expensive. So when we could have just had straight rail track across the field, much cheaper to do, we now have one that goes underground because someone can't bear to see their view of a field interrupted by a train. I think high-speed trains look amazing, but people are sort of obsessed and addicted with just having all of these fields that look exactly the same. You know my position, build bigger cities, build loads of infrastructure, and then rewild lots of the remaining countryside because we have more fields than we need, is my position. Some, some of you might disagree. Um, when it comes to NIMBYs, um, Labour are yet to lay out an official position on HS2. They seem to be generally in favour, but worried about the cost. But... When it comes to their leaders looking in the interest of their own constituents, it's a different story. Back in 2015, Keir Starmer had some fairly strong views on HS2. That does not mean that I support the proposals um, or that I support HS2. I, I oppose H2, HS2 on cost 
and on merit, it will not achieve its stated uh, objectives. We have had plans, uh, amended plans and further amended plans uh, for Euston. The only sensible plan uh, is to abandon the project um, altogether. This plan, uh, far from being an improvement uh, on the other plans, uh, is the worst of the lot. Keir Starmer, if you don't know, you know, he's a North London MP, so he'll have lots of constituents who are very annoyed about the roadworks involved in upgrading Euston, about the various buildings that have had to be sort of destroyed, essentially, to, to help um, create the space that HS2 needs. And, you know, fair enough, he's an MP, those are his constituents, that's probably what they want. They don't really care about connectivity to Birmingham. Um, they live in central London already, why do they want to go to Birmingham, right? But the problem there is you've got a local MP who is opposing national infrastructure that I think is definitely going to be in the national interest because of some parochial concern. And I think, you know, a brave MP would say, yes, my constituents are a bit annoyed about the roadwork, but ultimately we do need to level up this country. We do need high-speed rail that goes to Birmingham, then to Manchester and to Leeds, then to Glasgow. Um, but instead, like, no, let's scrap it. There, there must be some other less controversial way we can do this. Well, what if there's not? You know, the French built a very vast high-speed rail system for a reason. So did the Spanish. What is it about Britain which means we can do it without high-speed rail? I feel like just, goddamn, build the high-speed rail. Ash, briefly, am I being too harsh on Keir Starmer? No, I mean, fuck the NIMBYs, Michael. Like, just, just fuck them. Like, I'm sick of being held back compared to our European cousins, you know, compared to China because someone wants to preserve a field or they don't like roadworks. You know, imagine if I said, you know what, I don't want a hospital in my community. Hospitals are an eyesore. You know, the buildings are almost never attractive. And then there's always going to be sick people around, you know, kind of a downer. You know, I don't want a hospital. We'd be like, no, that's like a fundamentally antisocial thing to think because hospitals that to the benefit of everyone, they'll be to the benefit of you. They make the nation a healthier place to live. And vital transportation infrastructure like high-speed rail would do the same. It would make us a healthier country, a better connected country. It would also spread some investment around. You know, you can't just have all the good connections being from the north and into London and that's it. And then, you know, if I want to get from, I don't know, if I want to get from like Bradford to Peniston, it's going to take me precisely three years and five trains. I mean, you can't have levelling up as lip service only, but that's that's precisely, I think, what politicians are interested in. And I know that this is a little bit of a tangent, but you've got to let me go on it, Michael. We've, we've known each other long enough, though. You'll let me have a little tangent. What is offered as compensation to so-called, you know, red wall seats, the North, is this notion of you're the white working class and you've been forgotten because of like brown people and trans people and immigrants and all these like woke liberal Londoners who want inclusive Dove soap adverts, right? That's what's offered is this kind of like psychological compensation, but no actual compensation in terms of investment or infrastructure. And it's so transparently manipulative, but because so much of the media are in on it, it's like there's this, you know, horrible agreement between the press and politicians to totally screw over the North by being like, okay, we'll hold hands on you removing vital investment, uh, concentrating economic growth 
down south because of financialization. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to give you this narrative of working class northerners being screwed over by working class black and brown Londoners. And it's disgusting. I, I hate that we've got a society which is rich in racism and poor in high speed rail. But let's go on to our next story. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has appeared in Canada's parliament, where he gave a speech asking the country for more support for his war effort. But shortly afterwards, Speaker of the House Antony Rota introduced another Ukrainian standing in the visitors' gallery. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today even at his age of 98. So he fought in the Second World War against the Russians. Now, who was it who fought Russia in the Second World War? He's giving red flags. And lo and behold, it turns out the war veteran applauded in the Canadian Parliament fought for the Nazis. The 98-year-old you saw on the balcony is Yaroslav Hunka. He served in the 14th SS Waffen Division. Yes, that SS. In this picture taken with his unit, which was later accused of committing war crimes, you can see Hunka standing in the middle of the back row. But one round of applause wasn't enough for the Canadian Parliament. He's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. Thank you. He's a Ukrainian hero and a Canadian hero. In case you missed it, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as well as Zelensky, were amongst those applauding. And it's all pretty embarrassing, especially for Zelensky, a Jewish man, it's probably also pretty offensive. And it's no surprise that Russian media has leapt on the footage as evidence for Russia's justification of the Ukrainian invasion, namely denazification of the country. Antony Rota has now apologised for leading the applause, saying this, In my remarks following the address of the President of Ukraine, I recognised an individual in the gallery. I have subsequently become aware of more information which causes me to regret my decision to do so. No one, including fellow parliamentarians and the Ukraine delegation, was aware of my intention or of my remarks before I delivered them. This initiative was entirely my own, the individual in question being from my riding, so that means district, and having been brought to my attention, I particularly want to extend my deepest apologies to Jewish communities in Canada and around the world. I accept full responsibility for my actions. And um, so, you know, the emphasis there from Anthony Rota, clearly because lots of people online very understandably assume this guy had been invited by President Zelensky. Um, no, the Speaker of the House in Canada is saying, it was me, it was my bad, I hadn't put two and two together, I'm sorry. Ash, the whole thing is very embarrassing. I mean, obviously been jumped on by sort of fans of Putin's invasion. Um, I, I, I don't think we should draw any conclusions that suggest that this means that the resistance of Ukrainians against Russian invasion is not legitimate. But I suppose it does pot potentially put on show sort of the naivety of some Western supporters of the defense of Ukraine. As we've discussed before, I think that Ukrainians have the right to resist an unlawful invasion of aggression. 
right? Russia is waging a war, a war of regression. Ukrainians have a right to resist. But this has been something which some of us have been talking about from the very early days of the Russian invasion, which is when the West give a carte blanche to any and all Ukrainians who are resisting Russian invasion, well, then you might be empowering or indeed arming, uh, you know, directly, materially supporting some of the worst and most regressive political actors within a given society. Now, we know that Putin's language of denazification is a ruse for this war of aggression, but there is a powerful Ukrainian far right, and it's a far right which has seen increased levels of Western support because they're part of the fight against Putin. Now, one such uh, cohort has been the Azov battalions. Azov battalions have been, you know, quite happy to, you know, use as an opportunity the naivety, ignorance, and, you know, sometimes downright idiocy of Westerners, you know, posing for pictures with liberal journalists and allowing their reputation to be laundered when they are out and out neo-Nazis. I mean, it's a relatively common thing for, you know, a photo or a graphic to go, you know, around the internet celebrating Ukrainian resistance. And then it turns out the guy, you know, who's portrayed in it has neo-Nazi tattoos. And I think that this shows the danger of this moment where, you've got a legitimate resistance to an unlawful invasion being used as an opportunity to launder Nazism and neo-Nazism. And that's important not just because of, you know, okay, well, you might get, you know, you might do a bit of a snafu and end up applauding the wrong person. But should the war come to an end and Ukraine is having to rebuild itself after this war of aggression, you don't want to find yourself in a position where the far right, neo-Nazis, people who have uh, military training, experience, weaponry, people who also may have used this war as an excuse to, you know, perpetuate some of their own atrocities on the uh, on the on the Roma community in Ukraine. Um, you don't want them to be left in a more powerful position. And before anyone accuses me of scaremongering, I mean, look at what happened when we supported the Afghans against the Soviet invasion. Now, it was an illegitimate invasion. It was a very bloody uh, invasion, absolutely devastated the country of Afghanistan. But Western support alongside, you know, uh, activities from the ISI, uh, meant that you were supporting and arming the Mujahideen, who, you know, later uh, from that emerges the Taliban. So these are things which can have devastating long-term consequences. But when you talk about this in mainstream media, you get very, very quickly shut down. When I was interviewed by Andrew Neil, and I, I talked about these dangers of, well, you know, if your position is that we should feel very comfortable arming neo-Nazis if you thought about the consequences, he got very angry with me. He was like, well, the real fascists are the Russians. And I was like, well, okay, um, you know, UK, America, got a history of doing this before, but fine, fine. If you're comfortable uh, arming neo-Nazis, that's your hill to die on. Certainly not mine. Please, if you aren't a subscriber already, consider becoming one, I should say supporter already, consider becoming one. Um, you can do so at navaramedia.com forward slash support. Um, you may know 
we're looking to get 5,000 extra paying supporters so that we can continue um, this show on the road and keep expanding. If you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. You make all of this possible. If not, as I say, please do go to navaramedia.com forward slash support. Our traditional ask is for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. But of course, um, we really do appreciate anything at all you can afford. Let's go to our final story. Comedian and YouTube star Russell Brand is facing allegations of rape, sexual assault and abuse from four women. The claims emerged from a joint Times and Channel 4 dispatches investigation into Brand's past conduct. Brand denies all allegations of criminality. The Met Police say they are investigating a number of allegations of sexual assault relating to Russell Brand, but no arrests or charges have been made. And that makes this advisory note issued by the Attorney General Victoria Prentice to news editors around the country all the more bizarre. It says this. Following the airing of Russell Brand in plain sight dispatches on the 16th of September, there has been extensive reporting about Russell Brand. The Attorney General, Victoria Prentice, wishes to amplify the importance of not publishing any material where there is a risk that it could prejudice any potential criminal investigation or prosecutions. Publishing this material could amount to contempt of court. Editors, publishers, and social media users should take legal advice to ensure they are in a position to fully comply with the obligations to which they are subject under the Common Law and Contempt of Court Act 1981. The Attorney General's office is monitoring the coverage of these allegations. This is a pretty odd intervention from the government. The Contempt of Court Act makes it illegal to publish anything that might prejudice the outcome of active legal proceedings. The logic is that reporting on a live case could undermine a fair trial's extensive news coverage could influence any jury. But Prentice's statement is strange because a live case has always been defined as meaning that someone has been arrested, charged, or summonsed, or that an arrest warrant has been issued. And none of those things have happened in the case of Russell Brand. Writing in The Times, journalist Sean O'Neill gave his view on Prentice's letter, saying this... Is the government telling reporters to stop interviewing women who have courageously come forward, stop pursuing legitimate and important public interest journalism? Meanwhile, Brand is free to pontificate on social media channels. Prentice's intervention is a shocking overreach. It is not her job to tell reporters to stop reporting on issues where there is merely the potential for criminal proceedings. It is the job of reporters to uncover misconduct and wrongdoing, to gather evidence that could lead to criminal trials. What will she do next, curtail all reporting of crime and criminal justice, or is she only concerned with cases involving celebrities? The freedom to report on crime and policing is under sustained attack. The relentless advance of judge-made privacy law makes it legally perilous to identify suspects who are under investigation or arrest. The Law Commission is proposing to ban reporters from the trials of alleged sex offenders. Secret arrests, secret trials, and now a government threat to curb investigative journalism. So I think that's really well put by Sean O'Neill, right? If you've got an attorney general saying the mere possibility that something could become a criminal investigation means that you shouldn't report on it, I mean, what what can you report on? I mean, obviously, there are certain things one can report. There are sort of policy questions, etc. But so many instances of sort of the newspapers or TV or whoever reporting on abuse by individuals could end up in court, could end up, um, you know, swaying a jury. But often we only know about these cases of alleged wrongdoing because they've been uncovered by journalists. So the idea that you can't talk about something in case it becomes a criminal investigation or in case someone gets charged or arrested seems incredibly bizarre to me. And, you know, beforehand, it was already somewhat unusual or controversial that we have these 
contempt of court sort of um, policing of media. In America, they don't have it. I, I think there is a good argument to have it. I don't think it's, it's, it's ridiculous to say you shouldn't have wall-to-wall coverage of a case because it will influence the jury because it, you know, it may well do. But you should then have a very clear cutoff, right? Yes, you can talk about it until the moment at which a charge is made and then you stop. If you have to stop talking about it the moment that a charge is possible, that is very authoritarian, right? And it, it might well be the case that the media can uncover stuff that the police would struggle to do. You know, they have different styles of investigation. Some people are willing to talk to the media and aren't willing to talk to the police for various reasons. You know, as we say on this show, um, if you have been subject to sexual assault, you know, going to the police isn't necessarily going to be an attractive option because as we know, um, charge cases are incredibly low, conviction cases are even lower and you might end up being under a lot of scrutiny. Obviously, this is not to dissuade anyone from going to the police, but just to say there are many legitimate reasons not to. So to say, oh, this could potentially end up in court, so stop talking about it, just seems bizarre to me. I mean, ill-informed, bizarre, and quite authoritarian. The Attorney General's intervention on brand isn't the only one that's been coming out of Westminster over the last days. Last week, Chair of the House of Commons Media Committee, Caroline Dinanich, wrote to several platforms hosting brands' content. This is from the letter she sent to video site Rumble. While we recognize that Rumble is not the creator of the content published by Mr. Brand, we are concerned that he may be able to profit from his content on the platform. We would be grateful if you could confirm whether Mr. Brand is able to monetize his content, including his videos, relating to the serious accusations against him. If so, we would like to know whether Rumble intends to join YouTube in suspending Mr. Brand's ability to earn money on the platform. In response, Rumble wrote back with this, we regard it as deeply inappropriate and dangerous that the UK Parliament would attempt to control who is allowed to speak on our platform or to earn a living from doing so. Singling out an individual and demanding his ban is even more disturbing, given the absence of any connection between the allegations and his content on Rumble. We don't agree with the behaviour of many Rumble creators, but we refuse to penalise them for actions that have nothing to do with our platform. Although it would be politically and socially easier for Rumble to join a cancel culture mob, doing so would be a violation of our company's values and mission. We emphatically reject the UK Parliament's demands. This to me is strange. Um, and what I would say is going on here is that both sides have got this completely wrong. So you've got a government who seems to be setting out, sending out a letter to journalists to say, stop reporting on this case, even if you're reporting factually on this case, um, because there's an ongoing proceeding when actually... No one's been charged, no one's been arrested. Very unusual to say that. That's not actually the law. So the government representative, the Attorney General, is saying stop reporting on Russell Brand, which to me seems like you know a real threat to freedom of speech, let's say. And then you've got uh, the head of a government committee, sorry, the head of a parliamentary committee, so not part of the government, but sort of a, a significant body within the House of Commons, who is saying to um, social media platforms, or in this case a video platform, please can you make sure this guy is not making any money when he hasn't been, again, charged or arrested or anything like that. And so, to me, this just seems both strange, wrong interventions, right? People should be able to report on Russell Brand. People should be able to make harsh judgments about Russell Brand. We certainly have on this show. I think the evidence seems fairly overwhelming. At the same time, he hasn't been tried in a court of law. Um, it seems a bit strange for him to be denied a bunch of services. Now, using a video platform and making money from advertising. That is using a service, right? He's not an employee of Rumble. So to say he he must no longer be able to make a living when he, you know, there hasn't been a prosecution, there hasn't been an internal investigation in Rumble. It's got nothing to do with Rumble. I tweeted about this um, the other day, you know, that the, the letter from the culture 
um, chair of the parliamentary committee to to Rumble and to other platforms. And and I was saying, you know, the same. I think it's absolutely right for people to make judgments about Russell Brand. People who say you can't make any judgments before this has gone to a criminal court. I think that's ridiculous. I think obviously we can, especially when conviction rates for um, you know when it comes to allegations such as this are so so low. I think the idea that you know that we, we shouldn't even be able to judge someone because of that is, is, is odd. But the reason I, I think sort of demonetizing on YouTube or Rumble or anything is a problem is because when it comes to people keep saying the analogy is like a boss, right? If you're employed by a company, there may well be sort of internal procedures whereby they can terminate your employment if you do something which is problematic but non-criminal. Like that will often be part of someone's someone's contract. My problem with demonetization by Rumble and YouTube, et cetera, is that if you are employed by someone and they sack you for spurious reasons, right, you can fight them in a tribunal and you might get a massive payout, right? There is some due process there. Like it's not, it's not this, it's not the same standard of proof as going to a court of law where things have to be, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. So there's going to be a different standard of proof. But your employer will have to, to some degree, say, well, we have done a proper investigation along these lines, and we think this was the reason that you needed to lose your employment, and you can take them to an employment tribunal, and there will be, you know, it won't be justice in, in the sense of, you know, a court of law, but there will be some sort of due process. When it comes to YouTube or Rumble, because they're not employing you, they're just providing you a service, they can cut you off without any proceedings. And I think that is giving them more power than an employer, essentially, because your income is reliant on them. And they can just say, oh, we don't want to use you anymore because it's it looks bad to our advertisers. And what that does is it just gives them enormous power. And it also gives advertisers enormous power because they can say, oh, we don't like this guy. Can you, can you ruin their career? Can you make sure they can't make any income from this? Russell Brand, of course, will be fine because he's a very, very wealthy man. But the the precedent here, I think, is 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 very problematic and one that shouldn't be taken particularly lightly. I mean, I imagine, I'm sure you could say actually the same thing about, I mean, obviously, cancel culture and reputational risk um, is is less involved when it comes to an Uber driver or a you know a, a Deliveroo rider. But you've got a similar situation whereby someone can be fired without any of the due process that you get via a via a employment tribunal. And so the idea that well, they're a private company, they can make their own decision. I think is is very problematic and one which should be resisted. Um, let's wrap up there. Thank you, Ash, for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And um, thank you, Hackney Wick FC, for being a real football team. <laughs> thank you for existing, Hackney Wick um, FC. Thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Um, we'll be back tomorrow for now. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.